I, I thought before talking about antidepressants, um, I'd just say a few words about the condition they're most used for, uh, which is depression, um, and just say a few words about the history of the concept. Um, first, I, I, I just have to um, say that I have some um, conflicts of interest I need to, need to declare, um, because I've advised some um, uh, drug companies who are developing new drugs. Um, I should say that since I advised GlaxoSmithKline, they've left the field of psychotropic drug development, so I hope my advice here is to, today a bit a little more constructive. Um, so, if you, whenever you talk to a group of people, you know that some will know what it's like to be depressed, either through personal experience or family and friends being affected, um, but uh, not everyone will. So it's, a, so it's useful just to get a kind of idea of the experience we're talking about. Um, and at the borderline, where um, um, uh, what psychiatrists call clinical depression meets ordinary human misery, it's often not easy to make the diagnosis. So it's good to start with an exemplar, with someone who's experiencing a, a condition that most psychiatrists would say, yes, this is clinical depression. And so this is a quote from... Uh, Lewis Walpert, who's a distinguished biologist and a fellow of the Royal Society, um, who, um, who a few years ago suffered from a severe depression, which he, he thought had, had, no, had no apparent cause that he could establish. And I think he's making the point here that for him being depressed was, uh, was an unusual experience. It, it was worse. It was different for the most profound grief. Um, if, if you're trying to make a diagnosis of depression, then you um, look for other symptoms apart from low mood. And here Walpert's describing the sort of symptoms which you get in modern diagnostic criteria. Um, so he starts by saying he felt suicidal, and this is a, this is a very successful, accomplished man. And, and people who would normally never think about suicide become rather preoccupied with it, and, and, and that's the great clinical risk of it, though fortunately it's fairly rare. Um, people can't think, they can't concentrate properly, so there are um, cognitive problems. With that and uh, low energy, you can't work, you can't uh, become disabled from o occupational and social function. There's lots of anxiety with depression, um, and then people have other symptoms and various biological features, poor sleep, low appetite, you feel worse first thing in the morning. So these are the kind of symptoms you get. The other thing is that somehow depression seems very all-enveloping. All it, it's hard to step out from your mood, as, as I'll mention a bit later. And so even if you've been depressed before, you've been treated and you've got well, at that time in a depression, you think it's never going to go away. So I was convinced I would never recover. Um, so that's what most psychiatrists would say um, is a clinical depression. Um, and, and just a word about, about the concept of it, and as usual in medicine, it's all back to the Greeks, and um, Hippocrates describing melancholia, 400 BC. And I think one of the conceptual um, changes brought about in Greek medicine was that psychological illnesses, psychiatric disorders, were natural, uh, were natural conditions. So it's not witchcraft, it's not a punishment by the gods, these are natural bodily disorders and can be investigated using the methods of natural science. 
And that's kind of bold claim, which not everyone accepts even, even now. Yeah. I mean, if you go to advanced sociology, for, for example. Um, and he's making the point that it, it's anxiety and depression, fear or distress, they last for a long time. So we all get terrible moods for a few days, a week or two. Hopefully it's going to get better. But there's something fixed about this. And the word melancholia starts then, and that's not just a description, um, it's also a causal hypothesis. So melan, black, cholia, bile. Too much black bile is the cause of anxiety and depression. A few centuries later, a very good description from Arateus, um, don't need to read it out really, but people are very serious, unreasonably torpid means low physical and uh, mental energy uh, without any manifest cause. So the notion there that somehow this has come on you and it's not really apparent why. So perhaps we, we might say without any manifest reason. There's not a human way of understanding why you should feel like this. Social avoidance and suicidal feelings. Um, so just very rapid fast-forwarding um, to uh, modernity, obviously Robert Burton's book, The Anatomy and Melancholy, is very well known. Um, probably before this, once again, witchcraft, demon possession made a comeback for psychiatric disorders, but around this time people thought again, these were natural conditions. Um, once again, it's fixed, sadness and fear, uh, without just cause. Again, this idea, what's the reason for it? And people are socially avoided. They'd they be rather paranoid, fear of misuse, or sick. Um, Samuel Johnson suffered from severe recurrent depression. Um, and at that time, Boswell thought it was lurking in his constitution. So there's a notion that some, somehow you're vulnerable through constitutional factors. Uh, when he was 20, he had an extremely bad year with uh, dejection, gloom, and despair, which made existence misery. Um, it, it actually wasn't stressed quite so much in previous writers, but around this time the notion that people have anhedonia, that's an important symptom in um, modern diagnostic systems. So, so there's a loss of pleasure, a loss of motivation. And it's interesting, possibly changes in how self, how the self was perceived and the goal of the self makes these symptoms show up more. And it's actually very important now. So from Clouston's textbook, a loss of volitional power, no enjoyment, don't want to do anything. Um, somewhere along the way, depression replaced melancholia. It's fairly gradual, and actually melancholic depression is still recognised in some modern diagnostic categories as a subtype of depression, which is the more severe sort. Um, it's hard to know why it changed. I think the French psychiatrist... Es Esquirol gives a clue here that sometimes when um, our professionals find their favourite words being used by, by poets and pundits, they think, well, now's the time to change it because everyone's using this word. It should be special to my profession. Um, and, and the famous nosologist Kreppelin used um, um, depressive states as a, as a general category, and this included melancholia. And we tend to use the word depression now. Um, just to end up with a bit of Freud, because Freud had some interesting things to say about melancholia, and some of Freud's thinking has 
been adopted in, in modern ideas about depression, particularly the idea of loss. And Freud's contribution was to realise that actually melancholy resembles grief in lots of ways. Um, it isn't always easy to get this point away, uh, across. And sometimes, actually, when you're seeing patients who've, who, who've had a bereavement, it's not easy to know whether it's a normal grief reaction, an abnormal grief reaction, or actually depression. And I, I remember discussing this with a, a trainee a few years ago when we were seeing a patient like that who'd had a serious bereavement and was very low in mood and had lots of other symptoms. And I was saying, well, it's often hard to make the distinction between grief and depression. And, of course, this is where Freud's seminal paper, uh, Mourning and Melancholia, becomes very important. And um, she, said, she said rather crossly, well... Actually, the patient's depressed all day, not just in the morning, so how can that be relevant? And, and you realise when you hear that, it probably is time to retire, actually. So Freud, not high on the list of reading a modern psychiatrist, but makes this interesting. These symptoms, profoundly painful dejection, loss of interest, loss of capacity to love, people don't want to do things. So that's common to both grief and, and depression. But what you get in depression is very low self-esteem. You, know, you dislike yourself, you feel guilty and unworthy. That's the difference. And Freud's theory was that that was due to a kind of loss. So grief is caused by loss. Depression can be caused by loss, but it's often lost towards something where your feelings were ambivalent. So in some complex psychodynamic way, the sort of mixed feelings that you had towards the object are taken back into you. So you hate yourself as well. Um, and I think the main issue, as I said, that people now think of depression as often caused by loss, and it might be a symbolic loss, you know, loss of job, loss of respect in some way, or even loss which you're uh, not aware of, which is unconscious. And that, of course, makes it very tricky, because the patient doesn't know what they've lost. It's hard to get it out. I actually trained in the psychodynamic hospital where we used to use that approach a long time ago now. And somebody would say, I, I don't know why I'm depressed. And you'd have to adopt a knowing expression and say, I think part of you does know, really. So, obviously, that isn't done now. You'd be in trouble, I think, if you said that. Um, so, just finally, uh, phenomenology of mood. Um, because psychiatric disorders are problems in subjective consciousness by and large. There's some behavioural signs. It's mainly people's subjective experiences. In the 20th century, phenomenology became an important way of trying to understand, to um, classify those, those experiences. The, the main phenomenologist for psychiatry is a guy called Carl, Carl Jaspers, uh, who's a German ex existential philosopher. He didn't write much about mood, um, this amiable cove here is Martin Heidegger, um, who did write rather interestingly about mood. Um, there are a number of problems with Heidegger. It comes with quite a lot of baggage, um, one of which I, I, I find him sort of incomprehensible. Uh, but, but my son is quite a fan of his. And it does say something about mood that explains the way patients feel. And this idea that mood is, is a very basic phenomenon it discloses a world. So the world you, that shows up to you it depends on, on, on your mood. And so you can't get outside your mood. You can't step outside it. 
So mood is actually not an object of consciousness, but part of it. And that's why patients feel so stuck, that if, if you say, well, I think this is an illness, you're going to feel better with the right sort of treatment and time. They say, no, this is how, how it is. How, how can it change? So I think that's quite a good description of people's experience when they're depressed. Uh, the other interesting thing, a bit counterintuitive, mood is public. So there are moods out there in the world which we tune into. And the problem with being depressed is you can't tune into moods. You're just stuck in one particular negative mood. So um, if people go to a party, often the mood of the party is good and you can cheer up and feel part of it. And people with depression say, I went to an event and other people there seemed glad to be there, very happy. I just couldn't get into it. So that's part of, that's part of the phenomenon. And so from this, one of the problems with, with, with depression is that people are stuck in a mood which discloses a painful, pointless, and isolating world. And that's just the way the world is. Um, so just moving on to the dreaded DSM-5 um, and major depression. So that's what we work with now. That's a bit of a history background. This is what we've come to. So it's basically a sort of checklist diagnosis. You have to know a bit about the symptoms to understand the patients are expressing them, but it's fairly straightforward. So this means that it's reasonably reliable, and this is why DSM is used a lot, because it makes psychiatrists reliable in their diagnoses, that no matter what part of the world you're in, you know roughly what other psychiatrists mean by it. The problem is no one knows if it's valid, and so you've got one at the expense of the other. Um, and so, at the moment, this is what we work with, you have to have at least one of the symptoms in italics, either low mood or loss of interest or pleasure, showing how central that is to modern thinking. <coughs> and a total of five symptoms for two weeks or, or more. And all, all these symptoms are fairly relevant. I think you know, Lewis Volper was describing many of them. You'll see actually anxiety doesn't feature because people tend to separate anxiety disorders now, but actually anxiety is almost invariably present with bad depression. And there's a lot of arbitrariness, so two weeks or more, I think that's probably a bit short. We might all feel bad for two weeks. Um, and it's not the kind of fixed and enduring picture that the old phenomenologists describe. Five or more symptoms, you know, why five, why not four or six? It, it all looks rather arbitrary. So that's the problem with it, but that's what we work with. The other thing you'll see is that uh, because you have five or more symptoms, the range of symptomatic expression is very wide. So you might have two patients who only have one sim symptom in, in common. So this may be why trying to research depression is very difficult. The group of people you're studying is very heterogeneous. Um, so having said that, let's move on to causes of depression, um, about why are we using antidepressants to treat this? And uh, it's often good to get some folk ideas. So this is a, a, this is a survey of uh, 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 USA public opinion. Uh, you might endorse more than one item, so the total number goes up to more than 100. There's some rather in interesting notions here. So... Um, yeah, I always think perhaps this was taken some, somewhere in the Midwest, but anyway, um, due to emotional weakness, lot, so this is a sort of stigma explanation, and unfortunately a lot of um, patients think the same way, which is why they don't like to ask for help and don't like to, to talk about being depressed. 
caused by bad parenting. And actually, one wouldn't use that phrase, but there's no doubt childhood adversity, childhood abuse is a major cause of future depression. So that's right. I'm always rather intrigued by the results of sin sinful behaviour. Um, and uh, I suppose being, being an academic, I lead quite a sheltered life. And I always think those few of my colleagues who, who behave in a sinful way normally seem very cheerful. Um, and only a few think it involves the brain. Um, so that's what the folk psychology is. So why are we using medicines? And like most things in psychiatry, most treatments, drug treatments, uh, were discovered by chance, or not quite chance, they're discovered by chance, by, by, um, um, by very observant um, uh, psychiatrists and nurses working in a less, you know, less regulated environment where you just try things out if you wanted to. Um, so this is a very good description by David Healy, who's not a great fan of psychopharmacology, but gives very good um, historical accounts and this is the Swiss psychiatrist Roland Kuhn. And these were 40 inpatients of depression, so very severely ill. And this was in the 50s, where really all you did in Switzerland at that time was to try and keep people comfortable, keep them safe, make sure that they, that they were fed, and hoped after six or seven months they would just get better. Um, and David makes the point, you didn't need a double-blind controlled trial because this was very dramatic. So this is the tricyclic antidepressant imipramine not used much these days, and a very striking effect on Paula J.F., who sounded extremely, extremely unwell. Um, so, I think most people thought that tricyclics were. You probably wouldn't um, come across them much now. So these are drugs like imipramine, um, amitriptyline, and they're used in low dose to treat pain. That's where they're most used by GPs, actually, and they're still prescribed quite widely for that not used for, for depression much because they've got, they've got a lot of side effects and they're dangerous in overdose. I still happen to think they're slightly more effective than the newer drugs, but they're not as safe and that's obviously important. So I think even the critics think the tricyclics probably do work at the expense of making you feel fairly groggy. Most of their eyes reserved for the newer drugs, particularly the ones that work on neurotransmitter serotonin. So these are the Prozac-like drugs. And the question is, do they really work, or are they skillfully marketed by drug companies to people who don't actually need them very much? And these are the arguments that um, when you're looking at depression in a clinical trial, so we've gone now from the David Healy 40 severely depressed inpatients, in and these people are, are not placebo responders, just the people out, out in the community in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And do they really work any better than placebo? And the argument here, very well expressed by, by Joanna Moncrief, who's a psychiatrist, says there's a large placebo effect. People get well just by give, giving a tablet and people being nice to them. Um, Actually, doing a double-blind placebo-controlled trial is very hard because drugs have side effects, and people aren't stupid. They know what, what they're taking. Um, no particular pharmacological action seems superior to, to another, so there's a, there's, a, there's a lack of specificity. And there's not much evidence that important outcomes, important rare outcomes such as suicide, are impacted by antidepressant drug treatment. So that's been the general argument that's been around. 
And then um, quite a lot of the discussion features a famous rating scale devised by Max Hamilton. I'll just describe it very briefly because quite, quite a lot of the, the trials use it. It's the standard scale which you use if you're doing a double-blind controlled trial. It's based on symptoms described by depressed hospital patients, so these are quite the people who are quite un unwell. 17 items designed to be completed by a, by a, by a psychiatrist, so someone who's got experience clinically of treating, treating depression, taps depressed mood and anxiety, depressive thinking, also various bodily symptoms, so quite a wide range. The maximum score is 50, which you never see, normal, so it will all be about 0 to 7 probably, and if you're, if you're above 20, you like to have, have a clinical depression. Uh, but it's not a diagnostic instrument, it, it, it really measures severity. And so that's the standard rating scale that people used. And this was a paper that um, has had a lot of in impacts, um, published by Irving Kirsch in 2008, and it's a meta-analysis, which is how people like to work now. Evidence-based evidence medicine, put all the trials together, see what comes out. And um, there are 47 FDA, these, these are, are United States trials. And the reason for using the FDA is that all the trials have to be reported to them. Because there's some sort of fear, um, justified unfortunately, that um, if a drug company does a study that doesn't work, they may tend to you know, lose it between the radiator and the wall. And actually, you've got to have all the studies out there, even the ones that don't work, or especially the ones that don't, don't work. So, and they looked at all the new drugs, really. So let's focus on, on the SSRIs, which are now rather, rather iconic for the treatment of depression, Prozac drugs. And these are the changes. So from baseline, taking placebo, Hamilton depression score dropped 7.8 points. Active drug, it dropped 9.6 points. The difference is very significant, but it's only 1.8 points. So Kerr said these drugs are hardly any better. They're, they're, they're statistically better. The difference is too small to be meaningful, and it might be caused by unblinding anyway. So we just thought we shouldn't use them anymore. Um, if you look at it the other way, it's saying something different, really, which is it's not the antidepressants don't work, it's that actually both treatments work. Placebo works very well, too. And you see that from the effect sizes of treatment. So effect sizes are used a lot in medicine. So an effect size of 0.5 is quite a good effect size. Effect sizes of one or more are enormous. There's something incredible going on. So this look, both treatments look extraordinarily effective. And so the, if you deconstruct this, it's saying even people with quite severe depression, Hamilton depressions of 25, get well with a sugar pill. That's the message. You don't need an active drug. Just a sugar pill and people being nice, that's enough. And that might be true for some people, but obviously if you work in medicine, particularly as a psychiatrist, you think, uh, uh, well, I wish it was like that, because I give people pills and I try and be nice and nothing ever happens. So you think there's something odd about this group. Um, 
And this is Kirsch's diagram showing if you get to the green <coughs> stage, that's when the drugs appear to be working. So if you're very depressed, they do seem to have a useful effect. And it's cut off here is 28 points on the Hamilton depression scale, and that's very severely depressed. So I see outpatients mainly who are disabled by depression. They're often not working and they're not at all well. And their Hamilton scores are about... 23, 24. So these are very un unwell people. So that seems a bit odd, actually, because you think, well, if people are that unwell, they're scoring 28, how do they get to a placebo-controlled trial? Because you think the patients I see scoring that would be in bed most of the day or they'd just be in a chair quite, quite disabled. You think most of these trials are done by, by advertisement. So you think, well, people like that have got... The, the, They've got to hear, hear an advert on, on, on the radio and look in the paper and say, oh, I see there's a new antidepressant on trial at the moment. I think I'll just, you know, stroll down to the medical centre and try it out. It doesn't seem very plausible. So you think, why might that be? Um, and actually, it's something to do with the way it's scored. And I think you'll see why that is in a minute. So just to give you a little bit of perspective... In these Kirsch studies, so these are outpatients or people actually responding to, to advertisements, and um, they got a mean Hamilton impression of 25.5, which is very high. Actually, if you look at 45 treatment-resistant depressed in, inpatients in recent papers, so the, these are inpatients at, at the Maudsley, so that's pretty severe, um, their mean Hamilton is 23. Um, another more recent study looked at the sort of patients you think should be in those studies, so outpatients with depression, first-line treatment, Hamilton score of 21. Do you think, why are these scores so high? It doesn't seem to figure with the kind of patients you'd be expecting. And um, I think this abstract gives you the reason. So if you just look at the top panel... These are patients who've been recruited for a placebo-controlled uh, uh, regulatory trial run by a drug company. And you have to think, it, these trials are often carried out by, by specialised groups of, of um, clinicians. And this is what they do. Their job is to do trials for drug companies. And they're very high, highly regulated, so it's all double-blind every bit of information is poured, poured over. So they, they do it as well as they can, but they're under quite a lot of pressure because this is their core business. And what, what you've got here are um, Hamilton depression scales, and these are the patients rating themselves. They, they devise a scale where you can rate yourself on it, and this looks a nice normal distribution with a median, say, about 20 and these are the same groups of patients rated by, by the doctors who are trying to get them in, into the trial. You think, that looks very strange. What's happened to that bit? And you see that there's this huge peak at 20. And when, when you learn that the um, um, cutoff for trial ed entry was 20, it starts to become clear. Because basically, you've got to get people into the trial so you're racing them, you think, well, 19, perhaps one more for sleep disturbance, 20, yes, they're in. And so that's, that's what goes on. That's why the scores are so high, because people are under 
financial pressure to score people up so they can be entered in, into a trial. Once the treatment starts, everyone behaves rating normally again, and that's why everyone improves very fast. Um, so these, these trials, they, they may be necessary for, for regulatory purposes, but they're not real world. That's the basic objection to them. Um, and so just to summarise that, you say essentially the, these are business exercises carried out for regulatory purposes. And the use of placebos means that patients in the studies really differ from those in, in the real world. They're not actually as ill, they don't have as many symptoms, they have less previous treatment. And the pressure to recruit means that pre-treatment and depression scores are inflated by trialists, which gives you an artificial view of, 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 their, of, their, of their severity. And the result is that um, uh, many antidepressant trials fail to separate convincingly from, from placebo. Um, so if you want to know where can we show that antidepressants work well, there are two, um, two situations where I think uh, the evidence is quite good. So the first is in long-term prevention of severe depression. People with severe depression sometimes have episodes again, and if you keep people on treatment, the risk of that is much lower. And so this is a meta-analysis, again, by my um, uh, department mental head, John Geddes. And uh, you can see here, this is the final meta-analysis um, statistic. Staying on antidepressants if you have severe depression over the next two, two years, the risk of relapse is 40% um, on, on placebo and it's less than half on active drugs. So you can show a nice effect during long-term treatment. Uh, the other way you can show an effect, rather surprisingly perhaps, is in people with milder depression that's very persistent. And this condition is called dysthymia, so you're not so symptomatic, but it's been very long-standing, at least two years. And in these patients, there's actually quite a good active drug response rate compared to placebo. And that brings you back to the idea that people think um, um, depression, um, uh, when it's clinical, is a fixed condition. It doesn't go away. So the more enduring it's been, even if it's mild, the more likely an antidepressant is to work. I, I, I mean, you don't have to use an antidepressant. It's just, just a situation where it can be effective. Um, so, just a, just, a, just a few words before mode of action. The, the media reaction to the Kirsch study was very interesting um, and really made all the major papers with a long slot on the um, Today programme. And almost an air of schadenfreude you can see here. And presents don't work, don't work. And you kind of, you know, you've all been duped. There's nothing really wrong with you, just buck up. And you sort of wonder why it's playing into that kind of thinking, because you feel a lot of the people writing this must know friends who've been treated and have been helped by it, or family members. So, you know, why is antidepressant medication so unpopular? And I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, dislike and suspicion of drug companies, and that's probably rather, you know, rather valid. They're, they're going through a bad phase at the, the moment. Um, you know, most of their bad reputation, unfortunately, is, is earned. I think there's also a stigma towards antidepressant drug treatment. 
These are just happy pills, you're not solving a problem, they're, they're addictive. And also stigma towards depression, which is the buck up sort of thing, that actually, you know, sugar pill will do the trick. You don't, you don't need anything serious, this is not a proper condition. Um, and just to sort of, I, I looked at, at a Siroxat website, which was set, set up by the BBC after a programme about, about an SSRI called Paroxetine. And there was a lot of people writing into it, some saying they'd been helped by it and the programme was unfair, that it had made a big difference to them in a helpful way, others reporting negative experiences. And this is whether or not you chose to remain anonymous according to your experience. And actually, if you've been helped by drugs, you're much more likely to, to remain anonymous. As if it's more socially acceptable to be harmed by a drug than to be helped by it. Um, and so I think in that cult cultural context, this, this, uh, this is a writer, Andrew Solomon, who's written um, well about depression. You kind of agree with him that with all the stigma and the problem, um, if you take medication, it's actually rather brave. Uh, so that, that, was the, that was the first bit. I mean, I, should I... I, mean, I, don't, I don't really talk for very long because... Um, Psychiatrists have got short attention spans, but I, I could say, say a word about how, how they might be working if we accept that they do work. And so this is imipramine, the one discovered by Roland Kuhn. It's got lots of actions. The main one is thought to be an increase in serotonin function or noradrenaline function, two key neurotransmitters. All these other actions give the side effects, which you don't get with SSRI. So that's why tricyclics aren't used very much. Um, now the thing is, it's normally thought that antidepressants take a couple of weeks to work, three or four weeks, that's the standard teaching, and that doesn't fit in with the pharmacological action, because the minute you take an SSRI, your brain serotonin is increased, and yet you don't really feel subjectively better for a number of weeks. So why, why should that be? And the usual way of exploring this has been at the biological level, so to say, well, if you give a drug or a per... If, if you, take, if you give a drug to a person or to an animal, you get this acute pharmacological effect, and then over the next days and weeks, there's a cascade of other pharma pharmacology going on, a lot of neuroadaptive changes, and it's that that causes the antidepressant action. And over the years, people have studied numerous neuro uh, neurobiological changes, Every few years, there's a, there's, a, there's a different one. People say, well, this is it. This is the one. This is why antidepressants work. If we can model this action, there'll be a fast-acting antidepressant. That's the usual driver. But actually, nothing has come out very convincingly. And the most current story is that actually antidepressants work after a few weeks by increasing neurogenesis. And that's a very interesting idea because... I mean, it's only come out recently because I, I was taught that we just were born with a fixed number of neurons that died off at a frightening rate once we were past the age of 20. Uh, but actually, it looks as though we make new neurons through, through, um, throughout life, though I have to say it doesn't feel like it. Um, and so this is the kind of work you get in biological journals. So this is a rat that's had... Um, Fluoxetine or Prozac for a couple of weeks and there's all this neurogenesis going on there. So you think, well, that's an interesting story. And it's kind of nice because neurogenesis and synaptic plasticity, it's associate, are, are linked with learning. 
and you feel, well, if antidepressants work through learning, that'll be interesting. But you think, why should just why should just having more neurons make you feel better? You know, it might make you feel worse. So, I'm not quite sure why that should be. So, I'm just going to describe an idea by my my colleague Catherine Harmer, who who's looking at a neuropsychological idea of why antidepressants might work. And um, um, cognitive behaviour therapy, or CBT, is the standard psychological treatment in the NHS for depression. But the ideas of CBT therapy goes back a long time, and certainly the um, um, Stoic philosopher Epictetus was aware that... Um, it's not so much what happens to you, it's the way that, that you see it. And CBT helps, aims to reframe your experiences in a way that makes you feel less bad about things. And so if you just look at a rather sim simple model, uh, depression is associated with negative emotional biases. So when, when you're, you're depressed, you, you feel very gloomy about the future, you feel bad about yourself, you have lots of negative memories and things that happen to you are appraised in a negative way. And these two reinforce each other. So, so depression makes you be negative, and this, and this reinforces your depression. So that's why you're in this stuck state. CBT aims to work on that at a kind of cognitive, conscious level. So people say, I went into town today, and I thought as I was walking around, people looking at me in a rather... <coughs> critical way, I'm just not likeable and I feel very depressed about that and the CBT therapist would say something like, well, people are very taken up with their own interests is it likely they were looking at you and thinking that? How do you rate that on a scale of 0 to 10? You say, well, it's not very likely to, okay thanks I feel better, so that's the kind of general framework in a, in a nutshell um, so the idea is when you're better um, uh, you you lose the negative biases. Um, in fact, I think there's some psychological evidence that when people feel well or in, in when they're in a euthymic mood, it's not that people are very rational and objective. If anything, they're rather positively biased. So people sort of do things that aren't likely to work a lot. So they bet on the lottery they write grant applications, they get married, they kind of think it's going to be all right, you know. So we're all like that, and probably just as well. Um, but anyway, whatever the truth of that is, the normal thought is that antidepressants will increase mood, and that changes the biases in a more positive direction. So the theory we're exploring very simply is just, perhaps it's the other way round, that maybe, like a good C CBT therapist, what the antidepressant doing is actually producing a positive bias. And that's why you feel better, because your emotional world has been transformed into a more positive world. So how can we get at that? Because if you study patients who are depressed with treatment, after six weeks they're less depressed and they're less negatively biased, and you can't tell which comes first. So um, um, Catherine's looked at this various ways. The simplest way is to take people who aren't depressed. If you give them short-term drug treatment, it doesn't produce any effect on subjective mood. And so this is a study that she did. So she gave um, healthy volunteers the SSRI citalopram in a randomised placebo-controlled 
um, design, and she's looking at three measures of emotional processing, all of which are affected by, by depression. Um, so let's just look at the first one quickly. So you're looking at a computer screen, and various words flash up, and the task is, uh, would you be pleased or upset if you overheard someone referring to as this characteristic? So even the Department of Psychiatry, not a very hard task. I think some, some of the senior people struggled a bit with it. Um, but anyway, so you just look at that and you make, make a comment. And then there's a, a surprise memory task. What do you remember? Because these words are all either positive or negatively valence, and you've been asked to think about them as if somebody was talking about you in this way. People who are depressed remember many more negative words. I'm just obnoxious, basically. And actually, with the antidepressant, there's no change in people's mood here at seven days. They don't, they don't remember any more words. The words they do remember are more positive. So it's produced a positive shift in people's autobiographical memory. Um, facial expression recognition is, is a nice test for, um, for psychologists because it's fairly hardwired across cultures and we're all fairly, fairly good at um, recognising a set of facial expressions. So I must say, having worked in various multidisciplinary teams for a number of years, I'm I'm, I'm rather desensitised to facial expression, but even I can tell this doesn't look very good. Um, and then that's okay. If you morph it, it gets much harder. So this is neutral, and this is happy. And as you go along, we all vary this in where we say, yes, I think I see that, that that's happy. People who are depressed would have to get to about there to see it. Conversely, if you show sad or fearful faces, people who are depressed spot those much more readily because they're, they're, they're negatively mostly biased in terms of their perception. So what happens with the drug? And so if you had the, the SSRI, so citalopram, that, that's in blue, and these are how good you are at um, recognising fa facial expressions. And actually, the SSRI makes you less good at spotting negative facial expressions. So you don't see anger, disgust, or fear really so, so well. You kind of don't quite get it. Um, so you're making a mistake, so you must think it's something. And what's the mistake you make? And basically, it's that you think these mild degrees of disgust, fear, and anger are actually happy. So often thought if you're giving a talk it's a very good drug to be on because you look around the room and you don't see disgust for an anger you just see happy um, so the, this is a third task and this is fear potentiated staff and that's an interesting one because um, it, it activates a part of the brain called the amygdala which is involved in non-conscious emotional processing so very fast emotional processing because I think that's where the drugs are going to be working they won't be working in your conscious experiences and thinking um, and this is, a, this is a rat model it starts off like that so if you give white noise the rat jumps if it's white noise and a bright light that jumps more and it's this difference is fear potentiated startle 
and so and so this is Catherine just showing how, how it works so the burst of white noise that makes you blink and depending what's on the TV screen uh, uh, what's on the computer screen you blink more if it's a nasty picture and um, these are pictures that Catherine uses I think I, I, I gave a talk to, to, to the psychiatrist so, so she thought um, I, I should label she, she ought to label them in case they weren't sure um, uh, but that's negative that always looks completely terrifying to me <laughs> that's the kind of sort of smug student you'd rather not meet so to me they're all pretty negative but anyway that's the negative one obviously a fear, fear of assault and so in the placebo treated people you get the expected effect this sort of nasty picture and you jump more that's the amygdala far, firing off. It's a danger. Uh, but actually, on, on the SSRI, it's just gone com- completely. So, so things just don't startle you anymore. Um, and just, just to end up with, one advantage of this kind of, kind of model is that you can look, um, using fun- functional neuroimaging, um, uh, because the amygdala is, as I said, an important node and plays a key role in the primary processing of input, both internal and external, and it's overactive in people who are, who are depressed. So if the SSRI is working at the amygdala level, you ought to be able to see a decrease in its response using an imaging par- paradigm. And this is the one which we use, um, and so what you have here is a facial expression, happy, fear, ha- happy, um, and that comes up very quickly, 33 milliseconds, um, and it's more or less immediately masked by, by a neutral face. And so you don't consciously see this. It's a covert task, and your, and your overt task is to say, what's the gender of the face? Do you think that's what you're doing? Um, and even though you, know, you haven't seen this fearful face, the amygdala has seen it. Um, and uh, you do get the expected effect that on the drug in the dark blue or, or in the mode, uh, you, you've lost the amygdala effect. And so, you know, motion, you're very different here. Um, so, that, that's, uh, we've also done this in, in depressed patients. You see the same kind of thing after a week, and it does seem, seem to predict response. So, I think it's sort of looking like a causal mechanism. Uh, the other thing is how early you can push this back because um, this is after a week's treatment but here even a single dose of citalopram does, does, does the same thing so actually it's not right that the drugs take a few weeks to work they work right away it's just you don't feel better right away um, just thinking about why that might be so we've got two ways of seeing, seeing it here the first is the more, more traditional neurobiological way so there's various effects on 5-HT receptors, and now activation, activation of neuroplasticity programs, um, and, um, uh, neurogenesis, etc. Or this way, which is actually, there's a very quick change in emotional bias, but you're not aware of it. Um, you need to be exposed to social cues and reinforcement relearning of the emotional associations before you subjectively feel better and that's the reason why it takes a while to work 
Your world's emotionally transformed right away, but you aren't aware of it. You have to relearn it before you really, really feel better. Um, and that, as, as the relearning might tie in with the neurogenesis, which, which would be interesting, because that does bring those two, those two, two phenomena together. Um, so just to conclude then, um, antidepressant treatment is uh, useful in severe depression, uh, and I think that's going to be a Hamilton depression score about 23 or 24, in chronic milder depression and, and in preventing severe depression. Just to say there are, there are effective psych- psychological treatments too, so you don't have to have medication by, by any means. It often makes a lot of sense to try psychological treatment first anyway. I think the current antidepressants we have are not actually mood-elevating drugs. They affect depressed mood indirectly by changing emotional biases, the way that depressed people appraise personal social experience. At a non-conscious level, you're not aware of it. That's how, how they're working. So this is like CBT, which is a, a top-down strategic treatment arguing you into, feel, into feeling different. This is a bottom-up, the world is different, and then you start to feel better. And that's the point that translation the subjective mood change. You probably have to learn about this new emotional world. And, and it may be this is accompanied by changes in neurogenesis. Thanks very much.